Starting a podcast can be very time-consuming. I've been doing it for more than three years now, and my biggest challenge was finding a way to distribute my episodes across major audio platforms in a way that was easy, effective, and free to use. That's when I came across Anchor. And the best part is that you can actually make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. So if you're interested, download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. What's going on, everyone? This is George Clife. It's episode 33 of Let's Grab Coffee. I'm here with a good friend, Dennis Morrison, who's the founder and CEO of X.AI, basically an AI software that makes scheduling meetings easy and hassle-free for everyone. Um, he's also very passionate about artificial intelligence, as you can imagine. But Dennis is a serial entrepreneur. He's founded four businesses, three of which he's exited successfully, one of which went bust, which he says was rather a uh, expensive MBA. Uh, but I'm just Really, really uh, grateful to have you on the on the podcast, Dennis, and excited for this, man. This is going to be fun. Let's do this. So quick question for you to start. I mean, how did you get into this land of entrepreneurship? What was your journey like from, from a youngster? The funny thing is that I was very particular about not wanting to be an entrepreneur. And I specifically designed my life around the idea that I would just go take my CS degree and go work for IBM. That was uh, what I had planned. And the reason for that was that my dad, my cousins, my uncles, and most people in my kind of sphere were kind of entrepreneurs, not in the tech space at all, but self-employed, right? For where you got to work hard, the outcome of your work is kind of the food you put on the table. So I had a real intimate understanding of what it would take as in, Dad coming home late, late, always working six days a week. Not as in, oh, once a blue moon, you'll do a long week. No, my whole childhood, I don't know anything about Saturday being anything but a work day. So I thought, you know what? If I take that uh, CS degree, and remember, I'm from Scandinavia, I can just uh, go home at four, get my seven weeks of vacation, and just live a good life. And uh, that was really something I, uh, I thought through. But it was uh, not to be. So I uh, ended up doing some game development uh, back in college. And the company which I worked for went tits up just before I was about to kind of graduate. So I was not paid on delivery. And my whole master plan was that, hey, I deliver that last title. I get a little bit of money in my pocket. I go work this non-entrepreneurial life and it's going to be jolly. And as they went tits up, in my uh, disappointment slash anger slash whatever, I had my counsel buy the IP off of the estate. And when that company came back, having had it slightly refinanced, to then figure out that one of the engineers had bought the very IP, I uh, ended up selling it to them, made what I thought was you know, a little fortune. It was not, but you know, some money. And uh, I thought, you know what? This is not a signal for me to be an entrepreneur. What it is a signal of is I'm going to take this money, immediately waste it on some venture, and then when all is lost, then I go work. I can lose nothing. And uh, what happened was that on June 1st, 96, I invested my small fortune into an 
internet analytics startup. And if you want to start an internet startup, do it in the mid 90s. That's certainly not uh, poor timing. And if you want to do it even better, sell it in April 2000. So you get out on the right side of the dot com boom. And I was one of those kids. So that was the beginning. And it was not uh, as well designed as you might have uh, imagined. But uh, it's perhaps one, if you want to take any signal from it, this idea that clinchier things can be taught surely, and I believe entrepreneurship can be a taught skill, but it might also be one of those for where you do pick up on something and in your nurture, you can potentially be nurtured into being an entrepreneur simply by being around a family and or environment that are highly entrepreneurial. Sorry, mm. very long answer. You should have called my mom for that. <laughs> no, I loved it, man. There's just so much in there. But uh, I think one of the cool things that you were touching upon, well, a couple. One, you said it was kind of timing, right? In, in the early 90s, leading up to 2000s, a lot of that was timing. But, you know, credit to you, you were, you were sort of in that right atmosphere at the right time, and you kind of captured the opportunity where, where it's at. Um, you also had, I mean, having three successful exits, one of them acquired by Yahoo, one of your, your startups and your businesses, how, how does that happen? Like, how do you get to that stage where you not only have one exit, but you have three, and now you're on, on your way for, for a very successful, uh, so far, growth opportunity with X.AI? I am certainly not sold on this idea that you start the venture with some idea of what the exit might look like. Mm. I can empathize with that slide in your deck where you try to describe what the end game might look like. But certainly in my heart, and perhaps the purest inside of me, want to embark on a mission for where there is really no surrender along the way. And if we die trying, we should be equally proud. So anything which I've started, I've certainly started with the idea that this can be a single standalone viable business on its own. We can talk about exactly how big of a size we can imagine it might be, but it was never one for where I set out with the idea that here's a nifty little feature for Gmail, and if I put a team together, then one day Google might give me $10 for it. That was not really how I thought about it. And that particular slide was never really one that uh, ended up in my decks. What I do think, though, is fair and honest, is try to kind of imagine what are the milestones in my venture. And at each end of one milestone and the beginning of the next one, you should be confident that it is the right thing to run yet another milestone. And at some point, you might not see you being able to take the company any further. And there's nothing wrong with that. Keeping it as is, having a set of good customers, feeding your family, you know, you should be super proud. Or at that very moment, say perhaps it could scale, but in a different setting. And I think if you run a good business, you certainly get opportunities along the way. And that drives me, all my answers are just a long set of kind of side notes or footnotes, if you will. Mm -hmm. There's kind of two schools of thought here. There's the kind of uh, Peter Thiel, Y Combinator, 
idea that you should never speak to investors, only speak to them 10 minutes before you need capital. Once you received your $11, don't speak to them again because they are slightly evil. And I don't uh, subscribe to that uh, line of thinking. I'm more aligned to the idea that these people are supposed to be my partners. And if I want a partner, you don't find her 10 minutes before you're supposed to marry. You find her through meeting up often and by being extremely transparent. So I tend to meet two or three investors every week, year in, year out. No matter whether I'm at the beginning of milestone, in the midst of it, raising capital, not raising capital, but mostly just to make sure that you're aware of who I am, what I'm about to solve, where I'm at in this particular milestone, when I get to the end, what I might be looking for, so that if we do team up one day, you suddenly know who I am and how we operate. And as you do that, what you inadvertently do is that you expose yourself to an environment where those very investors, and they come in many shades, that can be straight up VC, family offices, investment bankers, and everything in between, for where M&A opportunities kind of uh, assemble themselves. And I can give you a good example here. That whole Yahoo thing was one for where I met up with RBC at some juncture in that particular venture on potentially raising capital, it not being a good fit. We were way too young for that. Them suddenly at that moment in time, kind of writing checks at a much bigger size than we could uh, go spend. But I still met up with them knowing that, hey, these are the milestones. Being brutally honest, this is not a good fit today. But if you see the milestones, this is actually where I think it would be a good fit. Then, I don't know, 13 months later, they ended up in a meeting with uh, Jerry, the founder of Yahoo, on some ask on some particular company for, you know what? I think I know the guy you should speak to. They then ended up being our investment bankers on the deal and all of that good stuff. But it was actually just one for where in my continuous exposure to a set of people, the M&A opportunities assemble themselves. Yeah, that's very true. Um, you know, I guess a successful M&A opportunity or an exit is, is, you know, could be looked at like a, almost like a Super Bowl for, uh, for an entrepreneur or maybe going public, depending on, on your view. Um, the flip side of that is when things don't go so, so right. And you have one example there. And I just kind of want to pick your brain as, you know, how that startup went about, what made it not successful like the other ones? And what was your biggest kind of outcome or learning opportunity from there? It would be almost not right if every single venture that you set out to do had a positive outcome. It might even suggest that you're not willing to risk enough. If they're all failures, that might also suggest that you're not necessarily on the right path. So you probably need some mix of success and failure to suggest that you are playing, you know, at your best against a set of players at your level. So I don't expect to play uh, the US Open next year. I should probably find some other people I should play against. So you find some level where you can play and still kind of uh, improve with that uh, set of competitors. On the one that didn't work 
out. Uh, it was a twist on seamless slash open table, and we can go into detail, but it probably doesn't matter. I think where it didn't work out was that we are extremely data-centric in the way we think about things. And our whole take was one for where we cared about everything but the food. And that meant we were extremely superior in both discovery, taking in orders, managing the orders, doing the distribution, and all the things that comes along with kind of having a pizza delivered to your apartment tonight at 7.10. And did things super sexy, way ahead of time. Like you would call in, I would recognize your number, I would have your profile on record, it would automatically kind of pop up in this kind of proprietary software we kind of engineered. I would say, hey, good to kind of hear from you. Do you want the same as what you did last Wednesday? You would say, yes. Do you want me to use the same card? You would say, yes, I would have a time for when to kind of deliver it. All good. You'll get that pizza at 710. And that was super solid. But we didn't produce the very product that we sold. And that was, if anything, what we stumbled on. So we didn't create a marketplace. So in a marketplace, you kind of create the environment for where you have two parties kind of meet each other. We took responsibility for the very thing that we delivered, and the guy who delivered it did it on our behalf. So if something went wrong, we took the blame. We took the refund. We took the kind of uh, brand discount. We took kind of just a punch to the face. And that wasn't the right strategy. For where today, if you order anything from Seamless tonight, some Thai thing, and it's not good, you know what? You blame the Thai place and say, that's shitty. You give it a one star, and then next week, you order another kind of Thai thing, but from another place. You still believe in Seamless. Unless, of course, all of the people in that marketplace are kind of shady, and that's kind of for them to kind of make sure it's not the case. So that's probably where it went wrong. The one learning, I would say, would be to perhaps work more on a coordinated ending. So sometimes you do a venture, and certainly if you think of entrepreneurship as a lifelong career, or even uh, you should think of it almost like an investor, right? So a guy like you in your environment and the people that you see might run some fund, might do some 20-odd investments over a very short period of time and run them in parallel, knowing all good and well that most of them won't work out, but a few will and they'll pay for the remainder. And that's kind of the uh, economics of uh, many funds. But we can't do that as entrepreneurs. What we have to do is do the 50-year fund and then have to do 10 ventures over 50 years, knowing that many of them just won't work, but some of them will. They'll pay for the rest. So that is a kind of different way of uh, attacking it. But knowing that some of them won't pan out, I think you should plan for good endings. Because at some point, you know this won't pan out, and it doesn't have to explode tonight. You could have planned for this five weeks ago so that the ending was coordinated. Perhaps I was a little bit too young, and uh, perhaps I didn't want to accept it. As you don't want to just you fight 
to the last minute, as in those keys to the office, I'll keep typing my right hand like you try to kind of take the keys from my left hand. No, I'll keep working. Uh, I, I could have done that. That was interesting kind of learning. Yeah, that's very interesting. And uh, again, you know, I think there's just a lot of value in what you said, especially around, um, you know, like when you want to start, you also have to know when to pull the plug on something because as an entrepreneur, you always just want to keep going. That is really in your nature. And wouldn't you agree? It's, it's just you always want to fight for it. I, uh, and that's a very good observation, right? I think there's perhaps two parts to that. I think there's the part where you have to figure out how far to swing that pendulum from one side to the other. I would probably suggest that most people give up too soon for where I'm not so sure that you fully proved out this idea. And I can certainly accept that it's very hard in the current setting that you've been able to put in place and that it's near impossible to kind of move forward. But as I look at it, certainly from the outside, and this is all opinion, most people quit too soon. Now, there's also the having swung the pendulum too far to the other side for where you quit too late. And that is uh, one choice. And uh, I think only the very entrepreneur who's in the midst of it will be able to really know where to kind of flip it. But I would encourage people to at least lean into it even when it hurts. Mm -hmm. What I was talking about before is the not leaning into it even when it hurts. It's the once you fully recognize this is going to end, then plan for an ending as in today, this is not going to work. Okay, so over the next 60 days, how do I best both package what we have, let go of the people who are working on it, make sure that everything is kind of closed down in a way for where I can certainly tell people we begun on this day, we ended on this day, and this is how it played out. Not some implosion for where it was even unsure about what was the last day. Yeah, that, that, that's very... Uh... Very, very good point where you almost want to clear out your desk before you leave. And you just want, a lot of it is credibility. I remember actually, I still remember on a panel we met at, which is where we first met in New York. Um, you mentioned that basically like your first round when you were raising capital was, was very, very hard. But then once you raised the money, but also executed successfully, you almost had a passport, which then fed into you raising, you know, money later on at a much easier pace because people already knew you and knew that you could execute. So similar to that goes to when things don't go well and how you handle that as a leader. I think that is the exact point, which is that it should be acceptable to fail. But when you do fail, make sure you do it in such a way where you can come back and you're allowed to play the game again. Mm, I love that. You know, talking about to play the game and, and kind of leaning in, which you which you were alluding to, you've leaned in nicely to AI. And you know, when we sort of talk about like emerging tech, I mean, the the ones that are most commonly used, especially now in every pitch deck we see, is you know, blockchain. Cannabis is certainly its own uh, you know crazy bubble at this point. Uh, but AI has always been there with big data for sure. What made you want to tackle that space? And you know, was it kind of daunting because as a leader of of an AI business at this point, you're also explaining you know, the, the pitfalls of AI with a culture that doesn't necessarily understand the tech entirely. So how was that? It's certainly a benefit to be 
in a market where you can ride a very positive wave mm. and don't be shy to take advantage of that. However, don't begin because of it. So you start out because you've been able to somehow define a pain so true and honest that independent of how you choose to solve it, if you do remove the pain, people will be willing to pay you money for that. And I would suddenly again, encourage people to separate those two. Now, if the very way you think you can remove that pain is by using some technology for where there's an existing wave, good on you, ride it and suddenly take advantage of it. And when we identified, and we certainly shouldn't take credit for that, I think any guy two hours out of college have figured out that there's pain attached to that of setting up meetings. But it was one for where we knew there was pain and we could see that if we go apply the idea of an intelligent agent, then that might just be the very solution that once and for all could have it removed or have the customer sign up for this not being a human task. So for us, it was perhaps a combination of really having a well-identified pain and that of us seeing that a new type of solution to removing it and in combination might be a good idea. But to also kind of add on top of that and to kind of answer your question, it did come along with a lot of challenges along the way that were not immediately visible for where it's very easy to say the words AI. It's easy to kind of talk about the conversational UI. It is not necessarily as easy to have a normal human being at an office use AI and understand that uh, AIs don't make mistakes like humans. Humans make human mistakes, but machines make machine mistakes. So what you think is simple for the machine might be extremely complex for the machine. And it'll make a mistake that you would think, that is really dumb. Yes, for a human, but it was actually extremely complex for the machine. And this new setting isn't immediately obvious for everybody. Then there's also the fact that with these agents, we don't have prior design paradigms. So if you and me get together this weekend to have together some iPhone app, there's really a decade long set of best practices and design paradigms for how to best make that happen and we'll show it to your mom and she would immediately be able to kind of figure out, oh, okay, a new music app for where I can uh, do a certain new particular thing. And she'll navigate it, right? Because we'll design it against a set of principles where she knows what to touch, what to slide, what to kind of do. On the Asian though, that was not as obvious because nobody's really done it before. And that meant we had to do a lot of experimentation, a lot of trial and error, and a lot of how far can the science take us and how far is too far? And even if we can take it that far, would people then understand it? And I'll give you just one brief example here, <clears throat> which is uh, this idea that we spent months on end, think short of a year, trying to implement this idea of common sense. So say you set up your scheduling hours for where Amy is supposed to schedule meetings between nine and six, but leaving Friday at four, coming in on Mondays a little bit later, 
whatever you set up, something that kind of fits the way you work. So on you leaving at six, but hey, Dennis is in from New York. He's only in from one day and he would love to meet up with him. So Amy sets up a meeting at 6.30. So any human assistant will understand that if I'm only in for one day, she's probably allowed to stretch your scheduling hours just a little bit. Common sense, being the good assistant, that is actually very hard to engineer. But imagine that you could somehow figure out that at this very moment, I'm probably allowed to stretch your hours. Now, we did that, fucking spent a year on it and figured out how to do it. And then when we do it, the user, knowing that this is a machine, don't make the assumption that common sense is part of it and immediately just jump to the fact that, oh, that's an error. You do not adhere to my scheduling hours. But we do, but we have this really elaborate intelligence that can stretch it. And upon explanation, if customer success get to explain it, the customer will lean back and say, damn, you do that? That is awesome. I do want to meet with Dennis, all thumbs up. But they couldn't grasp that. So we needed new design principles for that. And that was just uh, one out of many, many, many examples along the way where we just mimic the human, but that wasn't the right choice. So. Right. Sorry, this is turning into a little uh, therapy session for Dennis. Yeah, it's but, all good, uh, man. It's part of the podcast. <laughs> yes, it is. You know, one of the things I really wanted to ask you, and for anybody who hasn't seen X.AI, I really encourage you just to go see how efficient this thing is. And it's, you know, in, in a positive way, it's kind of creepy how great it works, you know, because you're, you're almost interacting with Amy and, and Andrew, like almost on, on a like human level. And what I wanted to ask was, uh, because I ran into something similar but more so on Facebook. You know when Facebook, for example, uh, alerts you that it's your friend's birthday, you know, or LinkedIn uh, has so, sort of pre-canned messages that it already assumes that you want to reply to. How do you think we're going to retain authenticity in a world where many of the things that are sort of mundane in our daily tasks are going to be automated? I am not a fan of this design principle for where you try to fool people into believing that your machine is a human. Mm. You should not do that. And I'm only saying that because some of the first versions of Amy and Andrew didn't really disclose that clearly that they were machines. And hand on heart, so I shouldn't get too holy here, I took some personal technical pride in running these thousands of touring tests every day and seeing me winning some of them thinking, hey, this is pretty awesome. But you know what? It's not a good design principle. What you should do is to immediately make sure that whatever agent you put in place is identified as a machine. That does not mean you cannot make it human-like yeah. and humanize it in some of its characteristics. That's not wrong. If anything, I actually believe that amplifies some of our human empathy and makes us better. And I think it's of the utmost importance that even though we know these are machines, that we treat them kindly. But we shouldn't have a machine that in some design pretends to be a human and you now in 
some story of having to reschedule a meeting with Dennis goes into this long paragraph about how you can't make it tomorrow because your wife is uh, sick and it's really been going on for the last three months, but you hope you're kind of going in the right direction. That is not what you should be looking for, but you should be looking for something for where come the end of some dialogue, you say, hey, thank you very much, Amy, even though you know it's a machine. So that is certainly a kind of very interesting next coming years where we'll start to interact with more and more agents and we will need to kind of figure out what the relationship will look like. And it will not be empty. It might be a different set of emotions, but it will not be without any emotion. Are you, are you scared at all with, with the whole sort of AI and then especially on the robot scene? I mean, recently with a um, podcast with Joe Rogan, Elon, uh, you know, comes on and he, he he almost looked like overburdened, you know, like obviously he, he seemed pretty stressed out, but I'm sure you watched it as well. And there was, there was one portion in there where he said, you know, we're, we're going too fast for our own good. He gives a metaphor for the regulation around seatbelts, which took like 10 years. What is your take? Like, are you optimistic about AI for the future? So I'm very optimistic. I certainly uh, see what people are trying to warn us against I do think it might be just, at least at this very moment, a philosophical argument for where if we do have intelligence, which we don't even know what is, by the way, as in that is not a known quantity, but if we do have intelligence on some vector, and on that, I'll put human in one end, and I'll put my cat a little bit away from that, and then at some point, I'll put a machine on that vector, and if that machine is getting ever more clever, then at some point, inevitably, it will surpass humans. I guess, but that suggests that we both know what intelligence is and that we are even working in the same dimension because it could be that machines certainly will become extremely intelligent, but on a completely different dimension that is nothing like humans and there'll be no overlap. So I do uh, find it interesting as a philosophical argument, but it's not something I take, to be honest, too serious at this very moment in time. But I do think if we go one step back though, that the set of discussions around what if this time automation comes along so rapidly that we will see tens of millions of people unemployed overnight and how do we then cope with that? That I think is a real debate worth having. And even on that kind of very optimistic and when people kind of throw out the idea that we blink and then we have 30 million unemployed Americans, I think it might be a little lazy as in it's very easy to imagine what disappears. It takes real ingenuity to come up with ideas for what might arrive as in, what happens if you have 40 million AI doctors in India and no shortage of being able to run X number of tests that you're not able to run today? You know, how magical would that be? As in, and I'm not saying that's a good idea. That might be shitty. That's not the point. The point is that it takes real energy to come up with what might happen 
on the other side. And I'm certainly more interested in having debates on what happens, not the amount of truck drivers that will be unemployed once the self-driving car truly arrives. Love it, man. Sorry, what? that turned into a little rant there. That was not my point. I'm really I'm, just very optimistic about the future. I can talk to you for days about AI, man, but <laughs> I, I do know that you have to run to a meeting, uh, sorry, an event, I should say. Um, I did want to ask, and I asked this for all uh, you know the people I kind of chat with, what kind of piece of advice would you give for someone listening to this right now? Could be an aspiring entrepreneur, early stage. What's that one thing that really resonated with you, you know, during the course of your life so far? I am... 24 years in, five ventures in, a huge fan of entrepreneurship. You might not want a lifelong career as an entrepreneur. I encourage you to think about it because I think it will be wonderful. And I think if anything, the world tomorrow will see even more entrepreneurs. But if you're not yet ready to kind of make that decision, you should at least allow yourself to say, at some point in my career, I need to be able to inject 18 months into it and say, I will run one venture. Make the assumption already that it won't pan out, but for the experience. So when you do get old or you get to the end, you can sit with your kids and grandkids and say, you know what, let me tell you a story. And you know what? Of all the stories you have, that shitty BMW that you bought for your Morgan Stanley job, they don't give a shit. No, what they really care about is that story when you did that uh, beauty brand, you ran it for 18 months, and you and Sephora kind of uh, were in this battle. You know, that's a story. And uh, you should do it if only for that. And your kids and your grandkids will love it. I love that, man. That, that's an amazing perspective. Well, thanks a lot, Dennis. I, I can't thank you enough, man. And as I said, I can go endlessly with you on this. So maybe we'll have another podcast sometime in the near future. We'll make it a, a recurring event. Every <laughs> eight months, we do this. I'm in. <laughs> I'll hold you to that. Thanks a lot, man. And uh, wish you all the best. Perfect. Cheers.